Welcome to or welcome back to the Journey Through Life podcast. I'm Justin Barton and I'm the host of this show. I'm very grateful to have you as a listener today. And as you listen today or to any of our other podcasts, past, present, or future, and you have the name or an image of a friend or family member pop into your mind, please share that episode with them. Acting on that thought can and will bring blessings and joy to you and that person that comes to mind. This is the last step episode of this Journey in Recovery series of the Journey Through Life podcast. In this series, I've interviewed more than 15 different people from many different backgrounds and locations on one of each of the 12 steps of recovery as laid out originally in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, before you tell yourself that this doesn't apply to you or, hey, I've already missed the first several episodes, so why should I even continue? I am begging you, I'm asking you to give it a shot, listen to this episode, and then go back and listen to the others. That's one of the awesome things about podcasts is if you missed the one that was re- released last week, just go back and listen to it. You don't have to, um, it's not like TV or radio, you can do it at any time. Also, if you think, hey, I'm not an addict, this doesn't apply to me, um, I think that it would be awesome if you gave it a shot and went back and listened to this one and all the other episodes to to learn a little bit about the 12 steps of recovery and how they can apply to anybody with any weakness, any addiction, any habit, any just character flaw that we have that maybe we've been trying to get rid of for years and decades and and maybe nobody but ourselves knows about it. Man, by applying these 12 steps of recovery in any of those situations, I know it can be beneficial to any human being who goes into it with real intent and applies the principles of these steps into their lives. So addictions, yes, they can include the things that we think of typically, you know, drugs, alcohol. They can also include things that may not be as prevalent or as socially acceptable, I guess. Things like, oh, overeating, eating disorders, cutting, sex addictions, or maybe even something as seemingly insignificant, but just as gripping as we all know, as our smartphones, social media, video games. Now in this closeout episode, we speak with Bert B., an alcoholic and drug drug addict with more than 48 years sobriety. We're going to talk to him about step 12. And Bert has ties to some of the founders and original members of Alcoholics Anonymous and has some great stories about recovery, healing, and his experiences from his life that have made him into quite the thinker. There are many places in this episode where he shares something that just blows my mind and goes beyond my current wisdom and comprehension. This wisdom is something that is driving me to learn more and more about life, about myself, and about the world and what is real. If this is your first episode of this series or of this podcast as a whole, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to all of the previous episodes of this Journey in Recovery series at some point. There are 12 steps and they are in a prescribed order for a reason. And this is the 12th step, so it's the last one. So whether you do that now or after you listen to this episode, I heartily invite you to listen to the others. Now step 12 reads, Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. In this and other conversations, you may be introduced to concepts that you have never before considered or may even seem contradictory to what you hold as truth, um, maybe for perhaps your whole life. But these concepts are shared as honestly and openly as possible 
using real experiences that cannot be denied as being true to these people sharing them. Now, while you listen, take mental or physical notes of ideas of self-improvement that pop into your head. Then, at the end of this podcast, review those notes and make a plan about how you can implement them. Now, kick back, hit the road, work out, or do house or yard work or whatever you do while listening to podcasts. And be ready to learn and feel and gain insights like you may have never considered before. Here we go with Bert B. And just a heads up on this one, the sound quality is a little bit poor. It was done over a landline using Google Voice, and it just doesn't sound really good. But the message is very powerful. Through the magic of telephone and and Google Voice, a new thing that I'm working with now in in doing this uh, recording here. I am sitting here with Bert, and Bert, why don't you introduce yourself as if you were in a in a twelve step meeting somewhere, and tell us just a little bit about yourself. Okay, I'm Bert. I'm a B. I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. I'm also an overeater. I am a uh, essay. And I, I used to tell my story, I'd say, I, I never gambled, but I actually got an inheritance and I put it into the most risky trading and lost $40,000 in about six months. So I'm probably a GA too, but I wow, so sponsored a GA not too long ago. <clears throat> oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, very good. So... Bert, tell me, well, tell me a little bit about how old are you? What's your sobriety date from alcohol, from alcohol and drugs? August of uh, 72. Wow. Yeah. So you're, you've been sober for nearly 50 years from alcohol? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Alcohol and drugs. Cigarettes. Uh-huh. Let's kind of go back in your life, Bert, a little bit. With 48 years sobriety from alcohol, and I, I think let's let's focus on the alcohol and drugs. And so, if you have 48 years sobriety, about how old are you right now, Bert? I, I'm uh, 77. 77 years old. That's awesome. I I hope to live that long, and and I hope to have health when I get to that point. Um. So tell me a little bit about your first experiences in your life with you know, alcohol, why, why did you become involved in alcohol and become an alcoholic? Well, I had like a, uh, a spiritual experience in my youth, in my childhood and like that, and in my youth, and I lost that, like the latter part of my public education and my college uh, become um, more atheistic and uh, agnostic and like that. And um, when I got um, uh, into college, I was uh, going in the, uh, looking for the kids. And I said, where are they? And they said, they're in the bar. And I went in the bar. My, well, you know, I knew not, I was a dry Methodist. Uh, my grandmother was in the WCTU, that's a Women's Christian Temperance Union. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I knew not to drink, but I... Uh, so somebody would hand me a beer and I'd hand it to somebody else, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, after about six months of doing that one day, I drank one. Hmm. Well, within a very short time, I was off and running. I would drink your money up. I'd drink my money up. 
because money was a short supply. I was I was a college student. I was living mm-hmm. off of savings from the summer, and I drink the warm beer on the tables and everything. And I thought that didn't really matter. You know, I was just being happy and cheerful. <laughs> hmm. I, other I noticed the other guys would come in, have two beers, and go home, take a shower, and go out on a date. You know, but they weren't doing the same thing I was. <laughs> hmm. That that's really interesting. So what what hole or why why do you think that that alcohol did that to you? It basically motivated you or handcuffed you to drinking up your money and everybody else's money and and everything else. How come it was different for you than others that you drank with? I was looking to change my consciousness. Mm. I was looking to alter to my consciousness in any way, shape, or form. And after that, it was drugs. Every kind of drug. I took every kind of drug. And from what you mentioned earlier, you had a spiritual experience as a youth. Yeah. And yet you went and, you know, kind of, Turned your back on that, or or became enlightened, or whatever it may no, be I in, was, in I school. I was propagandized. I was yeah. sold a bill of goods. And and you kind of bought into that, but you were trying to seek that. If I'm understanding this correct, you're trying to seek that spiritual awakening again, but through different different uh, medium. Is that correct? Yes. Were yes. you ever able to find that? <laughs> Oh, you, you, when you first take a drug, you might have, um, you might open up a little door and peek into a higher world. I was smoking keef once. We grew it in the backyard with the pollen inside the, uh, cannabis and, and, uh, in a hookah. I was trying to buy off of it and, I was looking at a uh, guy had a uh, aquarium in there with a bubbler and the water was going up and it hit the surface of the of the the bubbles went up and hit the surface and spread out and there was there was a light below that so it was lit and I believed I was seeing the stars being created at the beginning of time hmm. and uh, that actually there's a, a a story, a C.S. Lewis story in the Narnia stories where Aslan is singing the world into existence, and it was very similar to that. So you do, you can open doors and little peaks into higher worlds, but then as your your being goes down, your being attracts your life, and as your being deteriorates, you go to worse places. So I went from heaven worlds into hell worlds, mm. and uh, I definitely knew that too i mean um i was in a, uh a apartment in uh, albany and we were been there for a week and i was in a phone booth listening to the mothers of invention and he used uh frank zappa was quite clever and he's going the name of the tune was vegetables are my friends <laughs> <laughs> and he and he's going help i'm a rock help i'm a rock Help! I'm a rock, and I say, "You son of a bitch!" He's right. I've I've sunk into the mineral level. <laughs> wow. So, kind of, what what was your awakening then? I mean, where where? Well, maybe let's go to this. What was your rock bottom in oh, in regards to thing. alcohol and drugs? Yeah. The, the, yeah. I um, marijuana will make you ill, mentally ill. It's called schizophrenia. 
Mm. And um, the people think that it's a harmless drug. If they think going crazy is harmless, well, uh, it was not fun. It was very painful. I can't imagine. I had no physical pain. It was ever as bad as the psychic pain of being insane. Mm. <laughs> In case anybody thinks uh, that stuff is harmless, uh, mm. I care to differ with them. Oh, I, I went. I was locked up in the. I, I signed myself in. On, I attempted suicide. I was signed mm. myself into the loony bin, and the food was pretty good, but the company was terrible. Mm. Uh, and I was there for three months. That was as far down as I cared to go. So, do you mind if we talk about the suicide attempt a little bit and kind of sit there and discuss that? Tell, is that okay to talk about that? Yes. So tell me what what led you to feel like the only way out is out, and this is how I'm going to do it and why I'm going to do it. Well, I was a- unable to get my sanity back. I would go into psychiatrists who were doctors who were supposed to be able to help you with your insanity, but nobody was recovering. <laughs> so hmm. I um, became hopeless. And I was unwilling to admit that to myself. So mm. it took the form of a schizophrenic break where I thought the Third World War had happened and the police were going to arrest me and take me downtown to torture me for the names of my friends. And so I'd better commit suicide first. Wow. So um, I cut my wrists and I bled all over the apartment. And um, in the mornings, the days were better than the nights. The nights were worse. Mm. And, and when the morning came, I had the, I saw that I hadn't died. And so I went to the um, rescue phone where um, I knew was there a block or two away. And I told, showed the girl my arms and she said, oh, my God, Bert, what have you done? And she put me in the car and took me to the hospital. Mm. So um, I now I asked my sponsor uh, what would be, happen if I had succeeded. And he said that the judgment on someone who commits suicide is that they are forced to hang around the circumstances of their life until such time as they would have died of natural causes. Hmm. So I would still be hanging around my brother and my sister and my, you know, family, you know, and the other circumstances of my life, but not be able to participate. Can you mm. imagine what that would be like? You think that would be fun? <laughs> that might be miserable. <laughs> yeah. So I'm very glad that I failed. <laughs> yeah. So, Bert, you talked about your rock bottom there and spending three months in what you called the loony bin, the insane asylum. When was the and maybe this is at the same time, when did you realize that, hey, you know, I've got a problem and it's out of hand? When I got in there, I began to, I admitted that this, the, the situation was out of control, that, it, it was, that I was powerless and it was unmanageable. Hmm. And um, admitting that, the reality of that of the situation flooded into me, memory after memory of memory of powerlessness and unmanageability and chaos in my life. It just just kept piling in in the first days in there, you know. Um, yeah. And um, I remembered like oh, 
being drunk in Chicago and walk, and the guy was they were walk a couple of people were walking me down to throw me into the lake for the paycheck in my pocket, you know, and the guy mm. backed out, you know, all kinds of dangerous circumstances I'd put myself into. Huh. So had you already started attending like AA at the time that you um, went into the insane? No. No. When, when was your first meeting that you went into? My friend, he was an, another alcoholic and drug addict, a Mickey mm-hmm. B. And Mickey B uh, had, had, in the 10 years that I was drinking and using drugs in Albany, probably eight of those I knew him. Mm. You know? And uh, the, the last conversation we had uh, we met on the street, and we were both drunk, and it was one of those conversations where you pretend that you understand what the other guy said, but you don't <laughs> have a clue. And um, after that, he disappeared, and I, uh, his girlfriend was going to the same therapist as I was. She, she had the appointment just before me. Mm-hmm. I says, where's Mick? And she says, oh, he's going off to a rehab. And... Um, uh, I said, did he take his drones with him? And I said, no, no, they're doing other stuff. <laughs> and and uh, so uh, when Mickey came back, he was ta- he proposed to his girlfriend he'd been living with for five years or four years or something like that. He he was talking a program. He made a lot of sense. It all sounded good to me, and he was sober. And I says, you take me where you were, and I'll do what they tell me to do. <laughs> wow. So this this friend of yours, Mickey V, he, whether by choice or maybe his girlfriend's urging or whatever it was, checked into a rehab where he started attending um, 12-step meetings and started working his program. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And you saw the difference that it made in his life, and you thought, hmm, I want some of that. Is that correct Absolutely. also? Absolutely. All right. So so walk me through the first time you went through the doors of an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and what your impressions were, what your emotions were going into it, whether it was fear or excitement or whatever, and how you came out of that first meeting, what, what your impressions were then. Well, they they took me to the rehab. My first meeting was a, um, a pre-intake. They, they were they were to trying to determine how serious I was because they had ten beds there, and they wanted to make sure I really wanted to recover and I wasn't just looking to play pool or right. Uh, and I, I I was just very as agreeable as I could. I said at one point they said look at the twelfth step and ask me ask yourself whether you would do that. I looked down I saw it was a long sentence. I was ashamed of how long it was going to take me to read it, and I said yeah. I'll do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, uh, when I went back home, I went back into the bar room and I said, "You know, this that, I thought it was, I was they were going to help me control my drinking, and it's all about this, all about God." And, and they said, "Oh, you'll love it. You're you used to be a Jesus freak. You'll you'll think it's great." <laughs> all, all the drunks, all the drunks was for me getting sober. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, so so was that a bit of a shock to you that it was all about God then? Well, uh, yeah. At first, I didn't, um, but I, um, my sponsor was uh, wrote a um, article that uh, was written uh, 
uh, and I read the magazine while they were discussing my case. I mean, it's all about, you know, uh, sexual purity. And I'm, I'm going, oh, yeah, well, maybe Moses and and Jesus Christ and St. Paul were right after all, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I was going through a rather abrupt um, change there. Yeah, it's kind of a reawakening it kind of sounds like so so was mickey v your first sponsor or did you have or was somebody else your first sponsor um my first sponsor was tom Powers senior who was i made him sponsor me because he was the most experienced person in the place (laughs) and i wanted nothing less than the best (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so so Bert, for those listening who who don't know who Tom Powers Sr. is, can you share who he is a little bit? He is Tom was uh a a sponsee of Bill Wilson, who is the founder of of Alcoholics Anonymous. Co-founder, right? Yes, okay. yes. And and he wrote the 12 and 12 for AA, which is the most well-known of his what he wrote. Wow. Um, And uh, Tom, he spent the last 40 years of his sobriety trying to unify the anonymous fellowships into one. He called all addicts anonymous. Right. Uh, uh, It was a heroic effort, uh, which did not work. um, Right. For whatever reasons. But um, he very much encouraged us to be sober in all areas, in, uh, not just our killing addiction, but all possible addictive areas. So your, I mean, you've been, you've been sober from alcohol and drugs for 48 years, mm-hmm. and your sponsor was sponsored by one of the originals of, of AA. Yes. So, I mean, your ties run very deep into the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. Tell me about your experience then in Alcoholics Anonymous and with those old timers and how that either has changed or how it looks today in Alcoholics Anonymous as as compared to then. Well, um, at the time, the the AA came out of the Oxford groups. Right. And the program for the Oxford groups was the four absolutes, mm-hmm. absolute honesty, absolute purity, absolute unselfishness, and absolute love. Mm-hmm. And so the the four absolutes were deeply ingrained in those early guys, uh, as well as the 12 steps. Mm-hmm. And the 12 steps were the program. When you went into that rehab, in fact, and when you went into most rehabs, unless they were a totally secular rehab, you know, run by the government or something, mm-hmm. you did a fourth and fifth step and you came out with an amends list. Hmm. You, were, you were shot out of a cannon to go home and make amends. And that was checked with a sponsor and ready to go. And now uh, you they'll go to like four or five rehabs and they get nothing but the first three, and they're not even sure of them. You know, the, Tom was always concerned with the program being watered down as the a fellowship got bigger. It's because when it was small, uh, like he often talked about the first hundred guys, 
they were scared that it wouldn't work. Mm. So everybody was very conscious of doing the steps. You know? So the biggest problem has been pop psychology working its way into the program and watering it down. The most uh, ridiculous thing, for instance, is self-esteem. The program is in no way about self-esteem. <laughs> right. The more humility you got, the better it works. <laughs> mm. Oh, that's such an interesting phrase. So, 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 Bert, tell me why that is. With the more humility I have, the better the program works for me. Tell me about that. Well, because of the way the the first three steps are, you know. If you you really need help, you're thinking you really need help, you really know that you're powerless, you know, I I would go in and I'd say to my boss, Gus, I'm not going to drink today. In 10 minutes, I would walk around. He pushed me a beer. I was, I was employed in a bar. I was oh, okay. And he would push the beer toward me. I'd push it to somebody else. I said, I'm not going to drink tonight. Uh, in five minutes... I'd walk around and I'd take a Valentine ale out of the, uh, was the one I really wanted out of the, you know, and I could not, I could, I was truly powerless. Hmm. And there was a certain fence between the bar I worked in and the young people's club I was going to next, a kind of a wrought iron fence. And I just kind of watched myself going around that fence like a machine, you know, <laughs> from yeah. one bar to another. I was totally un powerless, unable to stop. Mm. And admitting that, right, and it wasn't going to happen, and coming to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, that was a gradual process that mm. went on over a number of years. And mm-hmm. uh, then face up to the fact that I was going to have to turn it over to God, that I could, I. it wasn't just a matter of being buddies with God and he'd give me a, a leg up. It was a matter of he's give the whole thing over to him. <laughs> I I don't run my life anymore. He runs it. Right. I don't have the option to use. I don't have the option to drink. Yeah, so I wanna I wanna go back and talk about a couple of things you've already talked about and then tie it into something you just brought up there. So you said you were raised being a a religious man, having spiritual, a religious boy, I guess, having a spiritual awakening as a child. Then in uh, upper grade school and college, you said you were propagandized into atheism or being an agnostic. Tell me about your spiritual reawakening when you realized, hmm, there really is something here and someone here that is greater than me that I can trust to give everything over to him. The road back started from my um, beatnik mentor, Donnie. Donnie was, see, beatniks had mentors. The Mm -hmm. hippies, they just took LSD and they knew everything already. (laughs) uh, uh, So um, Donnie uh, was an East Side poet. His father was a musician with a big Spiderback blues band, so he was kind of a second-generation bohemian Hmm. and but he believed intensely in the truth those guys believed in the truth he didn't believe in but he didn't believe in god Mm -hmm. so the more he argued his position 
his atheistic position, the more he drove me into a theistic position, or I became, I realized that that was my position. <laughs> huh. Uh, because he'd say, is it, what, what is it? What's the truth? You know, he believed in the truth. And so right. I was driven into recognizing, but my, in my conversations with Donnie, um, we were talking, we were, at that time I was writing poetry and reading it in the coffee houses, and that's what he did, and, um, we were discussing these things. So that was the beginning of the road back. And then, after I went to the psychiatrist, in the Navy, I went to the psychiatrist I, when well, I was in the regular Navy. I went nine times, and I thought, well, if I ever get nuts enough, the doctor that deals with that will cure me. You know, okay. I really thought that. So after going to that guy nine times, it became apparent that it probably wouldn't work. And so at that point, I started looking for God, and some of the beatniks were into Zen. Uh, mm-hmm. Buddhism. So I started there. I felt that Christianity had failed me, and so I started um, with Buddhism. I got the, um, the I got the Tao Te Ching. I got the mm-hmm. Chinese the Chinese Book of Changes, the I Ching. Uh, studied these and um, a book called Zen Flesh and Zen Bones. It's, it's stories about Zen. Okay. Um, were my first beginning to study, and I just kept buying books and reading them. Um, I was out in California, and I, my brother and I were going to come back through Canada. We got to the Canadian border to drive back through Canada, and we had $200. And my brother said, yeah, because you spent all that money in them bookstores in <laughs> Berkeley. <laughs> <laughs> the guy let us through. We made it back to Rochester on $200. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, Bert, what what other aspects of your experience in um, addiction or in recovery do you feel are really important to share right now before we kind of dive into discussing step 12? When I got to rehab and Powers became my sponsor uh, and the rules that he had for the community uh, and the rehab, there was basically – Single people were brahmacharis, the uh, SA sober. And when um, it was so, so there's no masturbation, no fornication, no adultery, no, uh, mm-hmm. you know, um, homosexual acting out, nothing like that, nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, that radically um, improved my chances of waking up spiritually. Um, mm. He always said that you needed three months of brahmachari in order to collect enough life force called uh, chi, shakti, the Greek and for the, is uh, zoe, uh, translated in the Bible as life, uh, mm-hmm. to be more correctly as life force, um, to awaken spiritually. And... You know, it's obvious that thousands and thousands of people restrained the sex force for thousands and thousands of years for purposes of conscious contact with God. I don't know what people thought they were doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what they were doing. And um, that radically improved my spiritual awakening. Even though I had been sitting Zazen for five years at that point, 
Mm-hmm. I had done one year of TM, uh, Transcendental Meditation, and I was given a mantra, and I said it for a year, faithfully. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing about having sat Zazen was that I was able to sit down and say prayers. Um, I was, had trained myself to do a prayer time. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so that was very supportive to me. But that was probably the most critical information because once I started waking up spiritually, I knew I was in the right place. Mm. This place, had waking up spiritually displaced the desire for use to, of drugs and alcohol. But I will say one thing is that for one entire year, I was tempted, and mostly in alcohol. And um, I was taught to, to say a prayer. I was taught to, uh, I was offered two different types of system of prayer during the day. And one was the uh, Hesychus tradition, the, the um, Jesus prayer, which okay. is taught in the book called The Way of the Pilgrim. And I picked up that system. And um, there's another system where the practice of the presence, where you simply talk to God because he is present, Hmm. uh, which is taught by a book called Practice of the Presence by Brother Lawrence, who was a monk from 1600s. And he offered us either system, but you have to have a system to prayer during the day. So mm. I you chose the Jesus prayer, and I said it often, and he said, if you are tempted, you, you have to think first, I gotta, I'm going to go use before mm-hmm. you do. You start saying that prayer, and you don't stop saying it until that gets, goes out of your mind. So, Bert, do you mind sharing a little bit about what that prayer is, what that sounds like to you, and how you utilized it, and possibly sometimes even utilize it today? Well, it's it's sort of like, say, if you had to, if you wanted to talk to the president, you know, and you got on the phone, how many times are you going to have to say, I, I, I want to talk to the president before, you know, say, say his name? You know, I want mm-hmm. to speak to Donald Trump. I want to speak to Donald Trump. How many times are you going to say that before you actually do? You're going to have to go through the, the Secret Service. You're going to have to go through, you know, all the different people there, you know, you're going to mm-hmm. say it. Well, it's the same way. It's sort of like, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. And you mm-hmm. keep saying it. The thing is, is your the name itself, St. John of the Cross said, whip the demons with the name of God. Mm, yeah. <laughs> the, the name itself drives malign forces away from you. And mm. I fought off temptation for one year, and after one year, the temptation, the compulsion was removed, like wow. so, like, and never came back. Wow, what a blessing! That that's really really neat. I think when you were going through it for that year, you probably wouldn't say this is miraculous at this point. I mean, it may be miraculous that you didn't succumb to drinking today, but for that year, every day was a battle. But now looking back at it, do you say, man, that's a miracle that that happened? It certainly was. I mean, um, even at the time, I was waking up. I was having, um, I mean, I 
before I could go to rehab, I had to have a certain number of days off of drugs and a certain number of days off of alcohol. Hmm. And so I closed myself up in my apartment, and I'm sitting – well, it was a, kind of a hippie commune with <laughs> bunch right. of people living in a place. And um, I just waited it out. And one day I said, geez, I'm tired of sitting here. I'm going to go someplace. So I went up to – where did I go? I went to a bar room. So I walk in the bar room, and there's a folk singer there that night. So I sat down, and the guy goes, talk about suffering here below. Talk about following Jesus. Boom, he hits the guitar. Talk about suffering here below. Keep on following Jesus. Boom. I said, said, thank you for the message. I got up and went home. Wow. (laughs) You know, it was just like things were going like that. Huh. Everything was falling into place as I turned my life over. Yeah. Man, that's a that's a really cool story and experience that you have there about your journey from spiritual experience to spiritual, uh, even death, I guess, to a spiritual reawakening. Super, super cool. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. So I want to read what Step 12 says, and then you and I, let's just talk a little bit about your experience in Step 12 itself. So Step 12 reads, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics or to other addicts and to practice these principles in all our affairs. So Bert, tell me a little bit about what that means to you, and then we'll get into how you practice your Step 12. Okay. Uh, Having had a spiritual awakening um, means that you actually have done the steps and that you live by the steps and that you continue to do the steps. Uh, Mm -hmm. I do a fourth and fifth step once a month. Wow. And uh, at first I did them every year. Mm -hmm. And I I found, because nobody told me, any specific amount of time to repeat my, they said you ought to repeat it, but they didn't say how long. And um, I saw that I was bitching and moaning and whining to my sponsor a lot. And that short, if I did this steps more often, I bitched and moaned less. <laughs> mm, I gotcha. So I started doing them every six months and then I got it down to every three months. And mm. um, the once a month comes from, the Blessed Virgin Mary, who recommended that at uh, Medjugorje, Yugoslavia. Hmm. Um, so at that point, I started doing them every month. Uh, the 12th step, I've kept up. I've, a 10th step, if I'm wrong, I, you know, it's, my my foreman actually likes that because my foreman likes to correct me if I'm, and, I, and he go, freely corrects me, but he I don't ever get pissed, you know. I'm okay. Mm. I'm wrong. You know? Yeah. That, that he finds that refreshing. Uh, the tenth step, the I do a form a formal third step every day. I was taught to do that. Uh, you know, get down on your knees by your bed and say, "I God, I turn my will and life over to care of God, your care today." You know. Uh-huh. Um, the eleventh step, an hour of prayer time. That was when I graduated from rehab. Um, I was doing uh, 20 minutes in rehab, and I gave myself uh, a 
increased to an hour because wow. that's what all the other guys were doing in the community. And uh, so an hour of prayer time plus prayer and time set, you know, during the day whenever you can. So um, that's basically, you know, the basis for my spiritual awakening. My sponsor always encouraged us to get to the fourth state. Uh, uh, The third state is very well described by um, the Ninth Step Promises that they read in the AA meetings. Mm -hmm. You're familiar with that? That's an excellent description of the third state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. The the fourth state of consciousness is above that. That's as far as I've ever been. There's a fifth and a sixth and a seventh. You have to study Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross. Uh, You have to study people besides me. Right. To know that I, I've been, but I have been to the fourth, and the, hmm. the fourth, you you start to reach into heaven worlds. You start hmm. to look into heaven worlds. Um, it's ecstatic spiritual experience. I can describe it to you if you want. Um, basically, uh, in, uh, like I say, the third step is well described by the ninth step promises. The uh, the fourth stage. You, the first thing that comes over you, and it, it may be a very short um, period of time too, and the first thing that comes over you is a massive sense of peace. This huge sense of, massive sense of serenity comes over hmm. you. Then God's presence is undeniable. It isn't a question of needing a lot of faith to believe that God's there. He's there, and you know it, hmm. uh, which causes some people to run. <laughs> The, if you're willing to accept that, uh, then uh, you realize that he also loves you and that he's good, all good and wants nothing but the best for you. But then time stops. So if you don't look at a clock before you went into this state and see a clock after you came out, you have no idea how long it took. <laughs> huh. It could be like um, an hour and you think it's 15 minutes. It could be 15 minutes and you think it's two hours. You don't know because time stops. Hmm. Uh, Then uh, there are questions on your heart, which the muse, these are angels that the Greeks defined, uh, which put questions on your heart, like what is God? What is man? What am I doing here? What is life all about? You know, Hmm. When you don't know those questions are there on your heart, but when you go into the fourth state, you start to get answers to those. You become aware of that those questions are there, mm. and you start getting answers to them, and they come flying at you from something you heard when you were six years old, something you read in a fairy tale, something a professor said one time, something of a re- you read in a book. And they just keep flying at you to answer that question. Hmm. When you, like I say, you you come out of that. Um, I've been in the fourth state sometimes for just seconds, minutes. Uh-huh. Uh, one time I was uh, in it for three hours. Wow. But at any rate, um, my sponsor, I he always encouraged us to get there and. I kind of wondered why in later years it seemed that because 
you need to have experiences of heaven worlds. Hmm. Otherwise, you're just going to want more of this life, and you'll be back in here again, hmm. trying to, trying to find the program from being incarnated somewhere else. <laughs> so, so that's a great description of kind of a spiritual awakening, and then as a result of these steps, and then tell me a bit about carrying the message to others and practicing the principles in all our affairs. Okay. Well, uh, the practicing the principles in all our affairs, as I, I described, is like every day, you know, if you got a 10th step, you got a 10th step. You're wrong, you promptly admit it, you know. You know, you need to fix something, you need to make amends for something, you make amends, you know, like that. That's an ongoing fact thing. Well, the, the biggest, uh, I go every night to a meeting. Mm. Um, it seems like a lot, but um, because I lived in a community where we were the, living by the 12 steps 24-7, taking an hour out at night to go be with people who are into the 12 steps is not doesn't seem to me like a long time. <laughs> mm. yeah. And so I'll, I'll go, I go to AA and I go to NA both. The NAs uh, need help, so I go there. I go to SA meetings, mm-hmm. uh, and I have an SA sponsor. Mm-hmm. Um, my AA uh, NA sponsor died last, a couple years ago, and mm. I haven't gotten a sponsor there yet. You know? mm. And I've had now five sponsors that are all mm. passed on. But um, what I'm mostly doing is pushing forth in fifth steps. <laughs> it seems to be my mantra. Have you done a four step? No. Mm-hmm. Well, this is my third rehab. I don't really want to. My parents are broke, you know. <laughs> yeah. I need to get this thing. And I, well, have you done a four step? Well, no. <laughs> and so I'm handing out instructions to. Uh, as a matter of fact, I've got a guy coming um, at uh, one o'clock today. Mm. To do one. Oh wow. Um, and uh, I just had a young fellow, uh, 17 years old, an N.A. Uh, mm. one. They're um, perfectly capable of doing it. You give them the instructions and you give them a nudging every once in a while, encouragement. Because I liked, uh, I want them to do it, want it to be fearless and thorough. I don't right. half-ass uh, uh, four steps, especially the first one. And then after that, I send them home to do a six and seven step for an hour, like the mm-hmm. book suggests. And um, I say, write an amends list and come back to me with your amends list. And we go over that. And um, I don't, I try to stay out mostly of advising people on their life and like that because I'm, I'm mostly not that wonderful at that. <laughs> uh, this young fella, uh, this the 17-year-old guy, I'm trying to talk him into getting through college without a debt uh, because I think that's important. Right. Um, so I've been pitching that up to him. So there are things, you know, issues and points um, that I help people with some of the older people I know quite a lot about natural healing so I uh, I sometimes advise people that way mm. 
So, Bert, sounds like you do a lot of work sponsoring people. About how many people, and, and I don't know that this is a numbers thing at all, but about how many people do you think you have walked through the steps with in your life? I, I couldn't begin to guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, uh, one time we, uh, I lived in the rehab. I, when I would return to the community, uh, that had the rehab, I lived there uh, in the rehab and 12-step 24-7 for, well, except when I was working uh, my job, for the first five years. Mm. Um, and that was wonderful. God, that 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 helped me tremendously. And one of the guys, we had a work parties, you know, different days. And uh, one time we burned there were there was an intake uh, information paper and there was a health uh, situation paper. There were two papers that they filled out when they came in, okay. and we spent I think it was two work parties, two or three work parties, burning those papers. Huh. They were confidential. There was a lot of people came through there, and so I twelve stepped a lot of people. <laughs> Wow. And what kind of fulfillment or what kind of, um, I don't know, let me see. Is it does, does it bring you joy? Does it bring you meaning? What does it bring you to work your 12th step by walking uh, walking with others through the steps? It, it always helps you. It helps you as much as it does them. Mm. You know, you. Um, the whole thing is to... Uh, bring yourself up to these higher states. You know, the I didn't give you the state one and two. State one is sleep in bed, okay. uh, sleep. You know that that divides into uh, uh, dreamless sleep and dreaming sleep, right? Okay. And dreamless sleep is more common in children and babies and like that, and less common in adults. Um, and but anyway, that's state one. State two. Is uh, what, and I and I'm speaking from out of the Gurdjieff system at this point. Um, state two is waking sleep. Mm. That's where you're up, you're out of bed, you're walking around, you're uh, you think you're awake, but you're just being pushed around by life. Mm. White life pushes your button and you react. Okay. Uh, you 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 you're lucky and you rejoice. You are unlucky and you mourn and moan. Mm. Uh, you, life just runs you, you know, okay. that is a state that alcoholics and drug addicts can't stand and mm. for good reason. That's why they want to get out. They want to get out of that. Mm. And so to bring yourself above waking sleep, uh, the 12 step always, if you're 12 stepping someone, you always come up into the third, you know, mm. I'm not saying that I, I never sink into the to the second step, right? Uh, uh, consciousness, because people, you, life does that to you. But the the practice of the program in any form will bring about the promises. So, Bert, tell me what literature one would look for to learn about these different stages of consciousness. Well, the one that my sponsor recommended for first off. Uh, was the psychology of man's possible evolution 
by P.D. Uspensky, who Hmm. was Gurdjieff's number one student. Um, Their student was a man named Maurice Nicole, who wrote commentaries on the teachings of Gurdjieff and Uspensky, and that is five volumes worth. Wow. And that is a lifetime of study, but uh, on their system. They were teaching a spiritual discipline to self-remembering and self-observation. Self-observation is watching, which was one of the great attractions of marijuana was that mm. you would, it, it was, the, the old beatniks used to call it instant zen. <laughs> mm. You you take the drug and you start watching. So that something in your um, spiritual memory says, oh, well, this was what Wang Po was trying to teach me back in the Tang Dynasty, you know. Uh-huh. You know oh, wow, i got to do this, you know, and then uh-huh. you're up and running, you know. But that never was the way Wang Po wanted you to learn it. <laughs> you wanted to learn it by watching your intellect, your emotions, your moving center. And he had you sit there and watch your breath just to to see some to watch something. So you got used to watching. It was a discipline. And and that's kind of what uh, I hear often in rooms or in places of people trying to be more self-aware of stepping outside of yourself and observing yourself from from a different perspective. Is that is that kind of what you're talking about there? Well, there's. There's been a popular um, a pop Buddhism thing recently with mindfulness, uh-huh. and everybody thinks they know what they're talking about about mindfulness. Yeah. But there's a when you self-observe, you must self-remember too, because you have to have some place to observe from, <laughs> and the self that you are remembering is called real I or true self. Hmm. Uh, the Hindus call it Atma. It is there in you. You don't know it's there. Uh, or in Christianity, it's called the Christ within. Mm-hmm. And um, you have gradually be train yourself. Uh, Gurdjieff said that once a day, you say, I am here. Just one, Don't make a mantra out of it. Just once mm-hmm. a day, you say, I am here. And try hmm. to realize that that's so. Hmm. Uh, because you need some place to watch from. <laughs> but the fact, the simple fact that you can watch your mind, the mindfulness guys think the mind is watching the mind. Uh, uh, Shankara says in the, in, in the Crest Jewel of Discrimination, he says quite definitively, the mind cannot watch the mind. It requires the Atma to watch the Atma. The presence of the Atma gives you the power to watch the mind. Man, Bert, you're blowing my mind. I tell you, this this stuff is. I, I'm I'm excited to learn some of this stuff. It's it's not anything that I've really um, dug into before, and I really appreciate your perspective and your experience with it. That's some pretty deep stuff that I look forward to learning more it's, about. It's it's all what my sponsor taught me. Hmm. I'm I'm not I'm nobody special myself. I'm you know I just like been very lucky that I had him uh, to teach me. And was that Tom Powers? That, that, yes. That, mm, yes. Awesome. And uh, uh, my mom, who was a um, Emersonian Christian, 
But then Emerson was the first of those of the guys to believe that by studying other religions, they could make their Christianity stronger. Mm. And uh, my mom felt that way and uh, taught me that way. And so when I met Powers, uh, we were a good mix. Very good. So, so Bert, I have one last series of questions that I'd like to ask you, and then we'll get this closed up as you've got a step four coming here before too long. And Did you want a, a description of, of what I uh, teach people to do for the fourth step? Did you? Yeah, would you like to share that before I get to that question? Absolutely. If that's something you feel is, is important, I would love to hear it. Well, um, uh, this comes out of New England, uh, the New England uh, big book study guys. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what I do, which is something different than them, a little bit different than them, is I have them do an addiction inventory because okay. that's the simplest way. They remember, you know, what happened like that, and that's the simplest way to get them going. You know, they can write that in a day. You know, I first started smoking cigarettes, and then I went to drinking, and I went to drugs, and mm-hmm. you know, so on. And and what ramifications directly related to that happened, right? Then there's the resentment inventory, which is described in the big book. Mm-hmm. You write down who you're mad at, why, and how that affected you, just like the chart in the big book. Put that on the left-hand page. Uh, you get like a five-subject notebook. You put that on the left-hand page. The right-hand page you leave empty. And you keep doing that until you got all your resentments down. Then you go back and what they call the turnarounds. And you write down what you did to them. Right. Where was I selfish, self-seeking, dishonest, and frightened? Hmm. That's right out of the big book. Um, And those are just guidelines to help you stimulate your mind. You can write down anything. you, You know, I... Let the air out of the guy's tires. Or <laughs> I, I punched him in the face, you know, whatever the result of the resentment was. And then um, he'd do a fear inventory. The fear inventory uh, is when did the fear arise? Uh, what happened to reinforce it? What did I do in self-will to deal with the fear? And how would I deal with the fear if I trusted and relied on God? Hmm. This is implied in the big book, but not stated. That was something that they worked out in the New England um, big book study guys, and I picked that up. Um, And then the sex inventory is right there in the big book. Uh, Mm -hmm. It gives the questions, uh, did I cause jealousy? Who did I hurt? So mm-hmm. I, I can't I can't recite those uh, right. by memory. I'm sorry, but um, they're right there in the big book. The questions you ask yourself about each relationship. Uh, the total of that is their fourth step. They come in and do it. I have them say uh, the uh, third step prayer before we begin. Oh, that sounds like a great way of doing things, and I think it's fairly similar to the way I worked my steps for and. Uh, I love the how you started out a little bit with the addiction inventory. Give me your story in addiction. How did that happen? Um, it's I think going and it's helpful. easy for them. Yeah. yeah. Well, very good. Stuff kind of reminds them sometimes of school when some guys had real bad experiences. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. 
Yes. Oh, I hadn't thought about it that way, but absolutely. (laughs) I get it. (laughs) So I want to ask you to define four terms for me in your own experience, in your own words. The first one is abstinence. Second is sobriety. Third is recovery. And fourth is healing. So if you wouldn't mind defining according to your own experience and knowledge, those four terms. Okay, start. We're starting with which? Abstinence. Abstinence. Um, abstinence is like it's more like surrender. You want to think more like surrender because abstinence kind of assumes that you can you you can stop. Mm-hmm. Kind of implied in the in the word. You know, that's why um, I, my my essay sponsor doesn't like the term sex restraint. He said, it's, it's surrender. Turn it over. And I, had a, I had a friend, he, they, they, he, every time he, he bitch and moan in a meeting, they'd say, turn it over, turn it over. He said, what do you think I am, a flapjack? He couldn't get the idea. <laughs> right. But uh, there is some excellent articles um, on surrender. There's a one called Surrender Versus Compliance. Hmm. It, it, the guy was a psychiatrist who was running a, um, a sanitarian and had the first woman AA in it. Mm. Uh, and he wrote this uh, Surrender versus Compliance article for AA uh, and for his colleagues because he was so impressed with her recovery and the fact that um, uh, she would play ball and like that, but when she gave up, that was when she got her recovery. Uh, now, what was the next word? The next word was sobriety. Sobriety. Yeah, well, that is defined in diff- different ways in different programs, you know. Right. Uh, what exactly uh, essay sobriety has been, you know, worked out by the essays and um, contended by other people, but uh, Roy K. stuck with his guns, and thank God he did. <laughs> yeah. OA abstinence. Another one, you know, uh, basically your food plan. Mm. Uh, that's what the OA is most terrified of is their food is a food plan. They, they're wearing their addiction right on them. That extra hundred pounds, you know, right? You no, know, plain to see, you know, and like that full view. They, they are, the denial is the worst of all of all the addictions. The mm. OAs are the worst. The wor- it's my hormones, it's my thyroid, oh, the poor thyroid, it always gets the rap, you know, <laughs> you know, I, uh, we had a point where we had a lot of OAs coming up from New York City, and I um, worked with one of them, and he, he used to just tell me about all the secrets, you know, the OAs, they eat like cottage cheese and jello for lunch up front where you see it. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. back in their desk, there's cookies, there's cakes, there's, you know, pies, you know, stuff hid everywhere. You pull out a drawer and there's candy. <laughs> <laughs> so so we've got uh, abstinence and sobriety. Um, recovery is the next term. Recovery. It really, it's, it's important to drop the chain. That's what my sponsor always said. Drop the chain. Get rid of all of them. A recovery from your killing addiction is critical. It has to be done. Otherwise, you're in, you know you're, you're you're liable to die. Right. 
and that may be overeating too. I mean, right? Yeah. Uh, but get the cross addiction. I was, I was. Uh, you find that all the time. Good friend of mine, very good AA. Uh, talks the program, practices the program, but he's a hundred pounds overweight. He comes up the stairs. He's puffing and. Um, uh, I had a guy uh, when I was in the construction business, a uh, uh, carpenter. Uh, we were hiring a lot of carpenters and uh, in the second home, building second homes for people out here in the woods. And and this guy comes in, and carpenter, and, and we get talking, and he said he's been in AA. He's been sober for 15 years. Hmm. And I look I look at him, and he's, he's got holes in his knees, and his, his tools are all beat up, and his truck looks like Swiss cheese. And I... I says to him, uh, well, you probably got seven kids. And he says, oh, no. He says, I'm single. Well, hmm. it turns out he's going down to Atlantic City every weekend. Ah, yeah. So you got, you know, you can't just transfer from one to another. Right. You know, you need to get them, drop the chain. So recovery is a more holistic drop the chain in every vice that's bringing you down, correct? Yep. Yeah. Don't and don't keep smoking. Good Lord, you know that that coronavirus is a friggin' lung disease. Quit. Smoking. Yeah. <laughs> and then the last term is healing. Well, um, it's the first and most important way is, is spiritually. Uh, when the spiritual healing, then the rest of them fall into place. But you must not then, like, neglect the body. You have slammed the body around. You are responsible for what you did to the body. <laughs> and um, I've been, like, uh, ever since I got sober, I've been, we, we went out, we did aerobics. I ran a mile a day for years by studying the book. Uh, Ken Cooper's book on aerobics and doing what he said. And, mm-hmm. uh, I t- took sauna baths. I uh, changed my diet, improved my diet, uh, and work on your health. There's an awful lot that uh, you can do. Uh, you get into natural healing. There's an awful lot that you can do on your mm-hmm. own. People are buffaloed that they need a doctor. Uh, you know, and you can. It's what they call. Um, they used to call natural hygiene. Just mm-hmm. clean the body up and it'll heal itself. Hmm. Well, very good. So, Bert, man, this has been a a fun, um, enjoyable conversation with you. It's been very meaningful to me. Well, I hope you. it's been meaningful to you. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, answering some of these questions has been a bit of a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> good. I'm glad I was able to to challenge an old timer like you a little bit and make you <laughs> make you dig a little bit. That's good stuff. We're just we're just instruments in God's hands. Absolutely. So there it is, step twelve, with Bert B. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Now look at Bert's life and the amazing things he has done since getting sober. Imagine your life one year, five years, ten years, twenty-five years from now, forty-eight years from now. If you are then sober from whatever weakness or addiction that holds you down now, I can promise you, you will be a happier and more connected person. That you will have a light in your eyes that others will notice 
and you will be able to lift and serve others who walk this same path we do. It's kind of a bittersweet moment right now at the close of this Journey in Recovery series, the steps of it. I think I will be doing a wrap-up episode just with some insights that I've taken out of it and some things, maybe some invitations that I have for you. But before I sign off, need to do some housekeeping. Please go check us out on Facebook and Instagram at JTL Podcast. Like and follow us. Also, go check out our website, jtlpod.com. And then if you want to reach out and have a conversation with me, whether it be about addiction and recovery or whether it be about just life stories that you have, the Journey Through Life podcast is about ordinary people with extraordinary stories, and they can be about anything. Um, send me an email at thejtlpodcast at gmail.com, and we can line that up. Also, please visit our sponsors, who I purposely do not put at the beginning of these episodes during this 12-week series, but they really are helping this podcast continue forward. They are alifeuntold.com, shepherdbrackets.com, and RadfordPinesHomeDecor.com. Use promo code Justin with a life untold to save 10% on your order. And JTLPod5 at Shepherd Brackets and Radford Pines to save 5% on your orders there. Now these conversations that I've recorded in this Journey in Recovery series have been life-changing for me as I have been applying many new concepts into my own daily life from the lessons I am learning. And I am definitely becoming a different and better person for it. Like I said a little bit ago, I will likely release one more wrap-up episode with some takeaways that I have gotten from this series and some personal reflections and perhaps some invitations. It really has been a beautiful thing for me. Have a great week and press forward one day at a time. Mm-hmm.